This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Europa Editions, the publisher of Breasts and Eggs by Miko Kawakami, a Japanese novel about contemporary womanhood that has been called a feminist masterwork by Entertainment Weekly and one of the best books of 2020 by Vulture. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor at Large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're going to be listening back to a conversation that you recorded with author Miko Kawakami. Yeah, so this conversation is actually part of the LA Review of Books book club, so you'll hear both me on the line and Boris, who's executive editor at LARB, and Miko Kawakami, the author of the book and her interpreter. The book is called Breasts and Eggs. Great title. Also great cover if people look into that. Um, <laughs> Why? What's the cover? So the cover is this a very soothing pink color, and then it has just like a globe on it that looks very nice. Here, I'll show it to you, Kate. Listeners can't really see it, and I'm not doing a great job of describing it, but the book itself is, is excellent. I would highly recommend it. It was recently published by Europa in, in translation. It won prizes in Japan, and it's about a young woman living in Tokyo whose sister and her sister's daughter come to visit. The sister is looking to get breast implants, and the daughter has been completely silent for months and refuses to speak. And so they spend, it's about a couple of days of them spending time together. And wow. I know, a good premise. And then the second yeah. part, the second part is that the same protagonist, the, the woman who lived in Tokyo, and she is looking into artificial insemination. She has no partner. She has no interest in sex. In fact, she hates it. She despises it. But she deeply wants to have a child. And in Japan, a single woman having a child is not legal. So it's illegal for her. And so the second half of the book is her thinking about what it means to have a child on her own and the viability of her becoming a mother. And she kind of gets involved in, in a support group for artificially inseminated people born from artificial insemination. And she gets involved with them. It's... It truly is a fantastic book. And, and yeah, I read the first few pages and my interest was already very peaked, but I, I had no idea it went in this direction. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm dying even more to read it now. It starts with a, with a definition of poverty, which is essentially how many windows you have. So how many windows you grew up with kind of tells how, uh, how poor you were. And I feel like that is extremely accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that first paragraph is, was just really knocked me out. Anyway, so we talked to Miko about the book, about Japanese literature in general, about the Japanese literary world, her influences, and having a child and her decision to do that. And it's a great conversation. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Let's get to it. Great. Welcome, LARB listeners, to a special edition of the Radio Hour, as well as a special edition of the LARB Book Club. We're very lucky to be able to speak to 
the author of our book and her interpreter. I'm also joined today by a seasoned radio broadcaster, Medea Ocher, our managing editor, who will interview the author with me. But before we get to that, I'm going to introduce our special guest. It's Miyako Kawakami, who was born in 1976 in Osaka, Japan. She is a poet, at one point a musical performer, and increasingly a prose author, the author of two award-winning novellas and several short stories, as well as this novel, which grew out of one of our novellas. The novel is called Breasts and Eggs, and began life as a series of blog posts on her very successful blog in Japan. So today we're going to be discussing Breasts and Eggs, but I will also ask Miyako some questions about her career trajectory, which is a very interesting one. But before we begin asking questions, I'll say a few words about the novel Breasts and Eggs, which is both very funny very touching, a searing portrait of what it is to be a woman in contemporary society, especially contemporary society in Japan. Also a portrait of three distinct women. Its chief character, Natsuko, is an aspiring writer from Osaka, living in Tokyo. And the book begins with Natsuko's encounter with her sister, her older sister, and her older sister's young daughter, who is a kind of catalyst for some considerations for both of these women about their lives, about Japanese society, and about their own paths, especially for Natsuko, who struggles with the question of what it would mean to both pursue her career as well as a family of her own. So we'll have plenty to say about this novel and plenty to ask, but I'll let Medea begin. Hi, Miko. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. So the first thing, you know, that struck me as I was reading the book was that the book, as Boris was saying, it follows Natsuko as the protagonist, but there's many, there are many women characters that she's surrounded by. And one of the things that it seems to me like the book is about is the friction between a woman's ambition and her ability to survive and how those two things don't necessarily go together and how they might actually, her ambitions, what a woman might want or might aspire towards doesn't always actually fit with her being able to survive in the contemporary world. So first question is, how do you approach ambition and how were you thinking about it as you were writing this book? Hi. So firstly, it's not just about contemporary Japan, but all over the world, I think women face a lot of struggles when they try to aspire to become something. And especially in Japan, if you look at the gender gap list, we're embarrassingly low on the list. And so for women, there are numerous hurdles, not just in terms of number, but also the size of the hurdles. So perhaps readers around the globe, when they imagine Japanese society, they might think that People are generally happy, generally bored. They might imagine a certain middle-class protagonist. So even though people may have this image, the reality of Japan is that the middle class is disappearing and has been disappearing for many years now. And over the next few decades, it will probably disappear even more. And so there's the complete dichotomy between the extremely poor and the extremely rich. And I myself, I'm from a street kind of background, and it was really important for me to represent that aspect of contemporary Japan. And also how to have hope 
especially for women in the society where there seems like there is no hope. Do you feel like women shoulder the burden for this kind of transition out of the middle class more than men? That there's a cultural shift or an economic shift that's happening and that the burden of that economic shift seems to be falling on women. Yes, absolutely. Women are systemically marginalized and especially single mothers have a hard time in Japan. Most single mothers are not lucky enough to have full-time jobs. They have a series of temporary part-time jobs, and there's very little support from the government. It was abundantly clear to me that what the novel did was present these interlocking disparities, these interlocking traps in which the characters find themselves. One is the trap that women find themselves in, where they're deprived of really many possibilities that are available to men. And the other one is the trap of poverty, or just a lack of financial means, which is more widespread. And also, I saw the difference between Osaka and Tokyo as being something that we don't generally see in depictions of Japanese culture abroad. And I would really love to hear more about what Osaka means in this novel and what it means for Miyako. So Osaka is very unique. It's the second biggest city in Japan after Tokyo, and it has a really strong history of comedy and a culture of comedy. So when I set out to write the novel, it wasn't necessarily my motivation to represent Japanese culture per se, but I wanted to follow one person's life navigating their way through Japanese society. And of course, a lot of the depictions are based on my own life, having been born and raised in Osaka. So in the novel, I incorporate the narrative voices from Osaka, the characters from Osaka. But what I wanted to represent was this culture of kind of laughing through tragedy, this tragicomic um, aspect. Yeah, so for me, it was really important that the characters are born and raised in Osaka within the novel. I wanted them to have this sense of toughness that Osaka people tend to have. I have to say, personally, I related to that very strongly because I was born in also a city that is a major city, but not a capital. I was born in the former Soviet Union, in Odessa, which is also known for its humor. So I saw a lot of those same character traits represented in the novel, that toughness, the sense of laughing through tragedy, which I think is just the right way to put it. I'd like to ask what role humor plays in your life and why was it important to you to inject humor into this story? And it comes across very well in the translation. So I think there's all kinds of humor, right? And so when I listen to or watch American humor, I think it's really cool. Yeah, I really admire his humor. In Osaka humor, everything is kind of turned into a joke. And we have this expression, but no matter what the situation is, everything is turned into laughter in the end. And that's the culture in which I grew up. So I think I can say that this kind of Osaka culture made the core of who I am as a person. Maybe just because you're talking about Osaka culture and its influence on your work, could you describe your childhood a little bit and just tell us more about how you grew up? I know that you were a daughter of a greengrocer, but what were the circumstances of your childhood and sort of describe Osaka to a person maybe who's who's never been there, who doesn't know what it's like? 
So Osaka is filled with the so-called shitamachi, which can be translated as low city. And of course, there are a lot of different districts in Osaka, but where I grew up is a real working class neighborhood. And I myself grew up in a single mother household, and it's a little bit different than the protagonist Natsuko. But it's similar in the sense that everyone there is working their bones from morning to night. You can't tell the difference between whether you're working to live or living to work. So I would lie about my age ever since I was 14 or so and take on all kinds of part-time jobs. But maybe my experience and upbringing is a bit unique within Osaka. And I say that because people who come from this kind of background normally don't get to have a voice, don't get to have this power to write about their experience. So people often wonder, you know, is this really true? Is this what life is like in Osaka? But for me, it was true. So that's the kind of childhood I had. That brings up the point, and you actually already began to address it. The leap from that kind of life to a literary life is a very difficult one. It takes a great deal of commitment to be able to transition into an artistic life, to choose an artistic life, if you've had to work to support your family from the age of 14. And what we were talking about, a scene in the novel earlier, in which there is a reading, a literary reading, and the character demonstrates a very healthy suspicion of literary culture and pretensions, but also great sympathy for the people who are there to hear poetry. And I wonder what that decision was like for you. How did you decide to transition into an artistic life? Or was it even a choice? Did you simply have to do it? I never imagined myself as a creator or an artist, actually. But I had a sensibility, and now I'm raising a son, and I think about this even more, that sensibility, I think, is really innate in a person. You can't make someone be touched by reading books. And so when I think back to my childhood, I remember just thinking about everything, things that have no answers. I just always thought and thought in my mind. So for example, when someone has a birthday, people would sing happy birthday. But when I was a child, I couldn't get myself to sing happy birthday. And I couldn't say that because I knew that growing one year older meant that you're one year closer to dying. And dying meant parting and losing one's consciousness that one has. So I just couldn't get myself to say happy birthday. So I think the sense of discomfort that I had with society, those emotions and thoughts made its way into sometimes a blog, sometimes music, and then eventually poetry and prose. So it was a natural expression of that sense of absurdity and despair, which also transitions into humor. I'm so interested to hear that you have a son because, well, the book, as we've mentioned, is called Breasts and Eggs. And one of the things that it's about, aside from all of these other things that we've been discussing, is, is having children and what that means for a woman and what that also means for the child. One of the things that is really interesting is that Natsuko really she really grapples over the question of whether to have a child or not and whether it is an ethical thing to do. Is this something that you grappled with when you were thinking of having a child yourself? 
Yes, absolutely. I grappled with the same, same problems. So, my readers, my old time readers, especially young women, they were actually disappointed when I gave birth because they felt betrayed somehow. So, if I'm asked, you know, why did you give birth, then I really don't have an answer that would please everyone. But I think one thing I can say is that as human beings, we make choices and take actions regardless of whether we think it's right or wrong. But even as we make those choices and decisions, something remains within me. And I think those things are what gets turned into material for fiction or novels or poetry for me. One thing I want to ask is you mentioned not having answers for your readers. I feel that one of the beauties of this book is that it presents a lot of critique, but no solutions. It really raises questions rather than answers them. And to my mind, I think that that works very well for the novel. Maybe just a general question Do you think literature is a place to look for answers? Is that what you try to do in your writing?、Um, so there may be moments when readers feel like they've encountered. An answer.、Mm. But for me, literature is something that destabilizes you rather than provides stability. It should make you more anxious rather than feel secure. And I think I definitely want that in literature, this aspect in literature. But even if a piece of literature provokes anxiety, Or lack of empathy, I think there's still something that remains when you finish reading a literary work. So I think that that feeling has nothing to do with what's right or wrong or feeling assured, but I think there's some kind of feeling that you've encountered the truth. Not the right answer. But there's a feeling that you've been able to touch the truth somehow. And that for me is a really important aspect of reading. And that experience may result in a lot of hurt or sorrow. But even so, I really, for me as a writer, I want my readers to have this moment where they feel that they've encountered something real. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Miko Kawakami, author of Breast and Eggs. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Eric Servini on the line with us today. Eric's latest book is called The Deviant's War The Homosexual versus the United States of America. And Eric is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Eric, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, written、oh, a in classic. 1956. Yeah. Okay, tell me, tell me about your experience with the book. I have to say, Giovanni's Room was really the first work of historical queer fiction that I re- ever read. I think I read、mm-hmm. it originally in maybe my early years in college and just had no idea that there existed. You know, a canon of, of, of gay literature 
before Stonewall, before the 60s even. And so this was really the first work that proved to me just how diverse and rich queer literature was, especially in in mid-century America. Yeah. Is it the kind of book that you come back to over and over? Or is it just the kind of book that stayed with you over the years? A hundred percent. It not only stayed with me, but it's just something that it's almost like a, a, a fine wine where you just mm. have a sip of it and, uh-huh. it just, you know, it can be a single sentence that just sticks with you forever. And even at the beginning of, of the quarantine this past year, when I was looking for books and things to do in my own apartment, the very first book that I picked back up was Giovanni's Room. And every single time you read it, you get something new. And for, for people who don't know the story, James Baldwin was was gay and black and very active within the uh, civil rights movement in the 60s in particular. But he wrote this book in 1956. And it was one of the very first books ever written that gave a really a fair portrait of gay life and gay love. The book is set in Paris, uh, where Baldwin was living at the time. He had fled America because of its racism and discrimination throughout the 1950s and, and fled for Paris, where he wrote this book and was really a meditation on this one part of his identity. So even though Mm -hmm. Baldwin himself was gay and black, the narrator in the book is gay and white. And he later explained that the reason why he made the the character white was because he just, he couldn't possibly have contained an analysis or or, uh, inspection of both parts of his identity in one book. So this really is just looking at this one part of his identity and saying, okay, what does it mean to be a sexual deviant, as it was called at the time mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s. And what does it mean to be in love in that context? This is the wonderful recommendation. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Sure. It's Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. We've been talking to Eric Cervini, whose new book is called The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Miko Kawakami, author of Breast and Eggs. In speaking to that, to the realness, I think one of the things that the book deals with is women as real characters and real people, but it's also about, well, breasts and eggs, the parts that we associate with womanhood. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, how do you think about womanhood as relating to certain, to a body, right? To a body and the things, the ways in which bodies might define what womanhood is, but that also do not at all, right? Do not at all limit the ways in which we might conceive of, of womanhood and that, and that bodies might actually present some problems in the terms of how we think about what a woman is. How do you think about those two, those, the relationship between the two? やっぱりその、I think we live in a society where we've started to hear people's voices that we didn't have a chance to hear before that we didn't know existed. だから私たちがその性別は2つであり
So what we've been taught that there are two sexes, that there are two genders, that's kind of a thing of the past. で今そのトランス女性、トランスの女性、トランス男性をめぐるその本当のその性を分けるものは何なのかとか、そのあの。クイア批評とかね。すごく、あの、普通、その専門家でなくても、あの、日常生活でそれを、あの、について考えるような風になってきている。So, now, even if we're not specialists, we, every day we have a chance to think about what it means to be、um, man or woman or about transgender men or women,、mm-hmm. what divides、um, the two genders or about queer critique.、Um, mm-hmm. This is something that's not just in the books anymore.、Mm-hmm. これからどんどんそういう文学が書かれていくだろうし、私もそういう文学をすごく期待している。ただ、その、なんだろうな、あの、何が女性を規定するのか。女性とは何かっていうことはやっぱりあのすごく大きな問題で。So、um, there are increasingly、um, literatures that represent、uh, these new ways of living and identifying, and I hope that there will be many more to come.And for me, what defines woman and what, the question of what is a woman,、uh, these are big issues as a writer.、うんそれをどんな風に書いていくかっていうのは作家がすごくこれから問われていくことだけど大事なのはやっぱりあの何かについて書くときにそれ以外を排除しないことだよね。But I think what's important is when you're writing about something not to exclude everything else. だからあの全部でなんていうのかな正し,正しさは一つじゃないし小説はやっぱり正しいことを書くものではないと思う。And a novel should not just have one truth. I don't think it's the role of literature to present a single truth. うん。だから、あの、なんだろうな。本当にその作家にとって切実な問題を書くことが小説をすごく力強いものにするんだと思う。So what makes a, a literary work powerful is For the writer to write what they are seriously grappling with, what they're seriously thinking about.、Mm. And that brings us to a question posed by one of our、uh, interns, which is What advice would you offer a young woman trying to navigate the world and enter the literary、uh, establishment? Like, in the United States, American students a So,、um, the other day, I had a chance to talk with a young American female novelist. And come to think of it,、um, I've had a lot of responses from、um, writers、uh, after the novel was published. なんか私思うのは、多分日本で作家になる方法と、アメリカで作家になる方法ってね、なんかね、すごい根本的に違う気がするんです。So, and I've come to realize that the way to become a writer in Japan is fundamentally different from the way that you become a writer in the, in the US.、うん、例えば、日本は文芸誌っていう、その、毎月毎月誰も読んでなくても出てる雑誌があって。So, for example, in Japan we have these, a lot of literary journals that come out once a month.、Um, even if there's no readership,、um, these Come out. <laughs> 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 
all these literary journals, once a year, they welcome new writers to submit their works. So every year, more than 10,000 people, to 10,000 aspiring writers, submit their, their works to the journals. でも、でも、毎年やっぱり10人、まあすごい狭いけど、狭きもんだけど、10人ぐらいはまあ作家としてデビューしていく。So as a result of that, about 10 people can make a debut every year. だから、あの、大学の、で、その時にもうなん学歴とか、えっと、年も全然関係ないから、で、なんていうか、エージェントもうちはその日本はないから、And when you're being selected for these、um, new writer prizes, they don't consider what college degree you have or what you know, MFA degree you have or your age. That's all irrelevant.、うんうん、so, in a way, it's very democratic.、Um, it's the way to become a writer is open to everyone. But in the US, from what I've heard, it seems like You have to have studied about literature or you have to have joined an MFA program in order to become a writer, or at least that seems to me to be the typical way. Is that true? Yes, I, I think that's true. There is a kind of professionalization of writing、uh, in the United States. Many people who enter the literary world do so through the networks that they build at Masters of Fine Arts programs. But what you said brings up a really interesting question. We have a lot of literary journals here too, but it sounds like the journals in Japan have a bit more influence, a, a more impact with these prizes、uh, for emerging authors. You said that even if nobody reads the journals, they come out every month. But what is the reading culture like in Japan? What, what is the readership like? What is the reception of literary fiction there? やっぱりあの、どこ、あの、出版不況だってすごく言われていて、うん、本全体の売り上げはやっぱりもうすごく落ちてるんですよね。うん、I mean, it is true that the sales of books have been going down.、うん um, it's not the ideal time for publishing.、うん、あの、やっぱり読み、ごら、ごら、日本ではやっぱりなんかその、娯楽小説と純文学って言って、そのまあ文学だよね。なんかやっぱりその違いがある。But in Japan, maybe this is、um, what's different from the US is that、um, there's a clear distinction between what's considered entertainment literature and what's considered more serious literature.、Mm-hmm. And even the prizes are organized very clearly. Some prizes、mm-hmm. are given to the serious literature,、mm-hmm. some prizes are given to entertainment literature. ね、so, in that sense,、mm. uh, the people who read serious literature, even though they may not be a huge representation in terms of number, they're clearly represented within the, the publishing industry or the literary world. ね、so, I'm more on the serious literature side, so I tend to see things from that perspective. And so, from my point of view, the readership doesn't necessarily increase, but they haven't decreased either. So, I'm more on the serious literature side, so I tend to see things from that perspective. どの世代にもいるんだなってことは感じる。うん、ただ、売り上げはすごく
so people who had been reading entertainment literature, I think they've all gone to Netflix. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the people who were reading the more serious literature and who like to read literature for the inconvenience of it, um, I think they've stuck to this integrated medium <laughs> and despite the inconvenience. So I actually have a question for you. Um, if people need this educational background in order to become a writer, what happens to people who don't have the privilege to have the education, who are so-called like street writers? Is, is there a place for them in the literary world? That's a really excellent question. Uh, yeah. I, I, I maybe I'm not the best person to answer it, and so I'll I'll, I'll share the answer with Dea. But I, I will say that I think that um, the MFA programs. Um, I'm not about to defend them, but I, they do offer entry to people who don't necessarily come from privilege, and so that that is a kind of entry point for people who have you know come from backgrounds that don't necessarily make mm-hmm. them uh, financially fit to be writers on their own. Mm-hmm. But they're very uh, but, expensive. They're very, but they're but they're still very expensive, and I I do think that there is a problem with uh, with access, and it's a traditional problem with access to to literature for people who don't take the the educational route or can't support themselves independently. It is a major problem. And Dea, maybe yeah. she can add a little bit to that. No, I think that's, that's a thorough answer. But but yeah, I think the you know the options are, and it happens in your book too. It's that you take loans. You take loans if you want to be a part of a program. And one of the biggest problems of taking a loan for an MFA program is that you might not make the money back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you might carry that loan for a long time. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, well, if I can turn the question around, I think your book is about class. And one of the ways in which it you discuss class in the book is the difference between Osaka and Tokyo. Um, but it's also within the classes that are engaged in the literary world, as, as we're sort of talking right now, where Sengawa is from an upper class. And that seems to be, you know, in America too, that those are the people who really have editorial power, often people who have the means to do that and, and to read and dedicate their life to that. You were talking before about a changing sort of economic landscape in Japan. Do you feel like the literary world is changing too? Is it does it feel more democratic than it did before? Is is it or does it feel like it's really staying the same to you? Do you feel like as a person who grew up who grew up in a working class family, do you feel comfortable in the literary world in Japan? あの、確かに私の周りのエディターってみんなすごいインテリですごくいわゆるあの、ちゃんと教育を受けてきてる人がばっかりなんだよねっていうか日本ではやっぱり出版社に勤めるってすごくあの、キャリアがないとできないことだ
And of course, some Japanese writers are very well educated and they've become very established um, in that way. But there are also um, writers who come from different backgrounds, like they're maybe they've, they're high school dropouts, but they've become a writer or they've had different jobs and then they turn to writing. Um, there's, it's very varied. だからそういう人たちがやっぱすごく面白くて記載ていくような小説を書く書いてきたっていうそのもう経験があるからあのなんだろうなあんまりこう日本は作品だけが評価されてあんまりバックボーンは関係ないっていうフェアネスがあるよ
So people are always、um, surveying、uh, one another. この、なんていうのかな、コロナウイルスの,そのパンデミックの時にもすごくそれが明らかになったけど、やっぱり人と、人と違う方法で、えっと、生きていくっていうことに対して、すごく拒絶反応がある。And this characteristic became really, came to the surface during the COVID pandemic, but to be different, In Japanese society is really difficult, and there's such a pressure to conform to, to the mainstream.、Mm. But it, in reality, women who have pursued careers, the time in their lives when they have the opportunity to think about having children is usually in their late 30s. And so these types of women who have invested their, themselves in, in career and work,、um, a lot of them had empathized with the novel. And I had a lot of response from this type of, type of demographic.、Mm-hmm. あの、私の小説を読んだ、読んでくれた人が、本当にじゃあ、その、精子バンクで妊娠して母親になるって道を選ぼうと思っても、その、やっぱり欧米のようにはいかないよね。うん、But even if my readers felt encouraged by my novel and, you know, wanted to go to a sperm bank and, and have a,、uh, give birth on their own, it probably wouldn't beはい。It certainly、uh, reads wonderfully in English. And the translators are Sam Bett and David Boyd. And I also want to thank,、um, to break the fourth wall, and thank Hitomi Yoshio for interpreting for us、uh, very eloquently and very quickly.、Uh, it's a, a, both qualities I lack. So thank you very much. And、uh, I, I think to close, what I would like to ask is what, what authors would you recommend for American readers? Who are the authors that impacted you when you, when you began your literary path? And who are the authors working now that, that you find most exciting? I think that the authors who are working now that you find most exciting. So, to speak for myself,、um, the writer that I grew up reading and that I was really influenced by, in terms of like, the technical aspect of writing, Uh, and the techniques of writing, I have to say, would be Haruki Murakami. And, for example, Virginia Ulf, message and fiction and fiction. From、um, writers like Virginia Woolf, I learned about the distance between the message of the story and the, the format of fiction. And, for example, it's a very interesting problem. ロジカルに物事を考えるっていう方法については哲学から大きな影響を受けてます。And regarding the more ethical issues and also the logical way of thinking, I've been influenced by a lot of philosophical 
writings.、うんえっと So, I myself have been really influenced by the classics of foreign literatures.、Mm. So, I would really like to recommend reading some Japanese classics. というのは、例えば私は樋口一葉という女性、日本で初めて職業作家になった女性なんだけど、So, one writer that I really、um, is important to me is、uh, Higuchi Ichio, and she was the first professional、uh, woman writer in Japan. で彼女はやっぱりストリートを書いたんですね。その当時、ほぼ200年ぐらい前になるのかな ?200 年じゃないか。えっと、1870年生まれだから、ちょうど100年前ぐらいの時に、そのあの男性しか物を書けなかった時に、彼女はあの、女性の目線でストリートを書いたんですね。So, Higuchi Ichio was a writer that really wrote about the, about street life. And,、um, she was born in the late, she was writing in the late,、uh, 19th century. So, it's about 150 years ago.、Uh, but it was a time when the literary landscape was very male dominated. And she was one of the only women writers who were, who had a place in that,、uh, literary world. で、私は彼女のその、あの、を現代語訳にこの間翻訳したの。So I've been doing these colloquial,、uh, these like contemporary translations of Higuchi Ichio's works. で、その時驚いたのが、現代より現代についてを掴んでるんですね。So one thing I was so surprised by,、um, even though this, these works were written, you know, in the late 19th century, her writings felt so contemporary and so there was something that conveyed、mm. some kind of Reality about today's society much more than the works that are being published today. だからよりよりこうもちろん時代設定とか出てくる小道具とかは違うんだけれども日本日本っていうものが本当に今の日本っていうのがどういうものかを知りたいときに特に女性をめぐるめぐるときには樋口一をおすすめしたいです。So, of course, the, the setting in her works and the props,、um, these things are different, but a lot of the issues that we face today in contemporary Japanese society, especially regarding、um, women and the struggles of women, are so well reflected in her works. And so I would definitely recommend reading Higuchi Chio's works. Well, that seems like a perfect place to end. And、Absolutely. hopefully, readers pick up your book,、um, It's Breasts and Eggs, and also. Read the books that you recommended here. They, they sound wonderful. And I'm also going to pick up your novella,、um, Miss Ice Sandwich, which sounds delicious on a hot Los Angeles day. Ah, <laughs> <laughs>、yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Miko. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Miko Kawakami, author of Breast and Eggs. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. 
Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Blotton. The publisher and editor in chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. 